WBZ Original. I'm Larry Galco. I'm Roger Berkowitz, and this is Name Brands, the podcast about the story behind your favorite brands. Roger and I are delighted to have Karen Kaplan, CEO of Hill Holiday, as our guest today on Name Brands. Looking back, Karen didn't even want to work in the advertising business when she applied for her first job at the Boston ad agency Hill Holiday in 1982. At the age of 22, she walked into the agency's office for an interview to be the receptionist. She was simply looking for a low-commitment job that would help her pay the bills while she saved money for law school. Fast forward 36 years later, Karen is still at Hill Holiday. Now after having 16 different jobs, she's the agency's CEO with 800 employees doing $1 billion in billings. With an executive team composed of over half women, Karen is also one of the few female agency chairmen in the country. Honored by Ad Age as one of the most influential women in advertising, Karen has spearheaded the agency's efforts to win big accounts and develop a proven ability to help the agency's clients drive remarkable success in the noisiest of product categories. The proof lies in the successes of key clients such as Dunkin' Donuts, Bank of America, Johnson & Johnson, among many other iconic brands. So if I'm Karen, I'm sure she'd say, there's no biz like the ad biz. Welcome, Karen. It's great yes, to have welcome. you here today. Thanks. Great awesome. to be here. To, to start off, I'd like to ask you a question, Karen. At what point did you decide okay, to forego your career in law school and stay in the ad business? Well, believe it or not, it was almost immediate. I'll say I was intrigued. As you mentioned, I didn't intend to get into advertising or to spend any serious time at Hill Holiday. But I remember literally getting off the elevator at the time, we were uh, on the 39th floor of the John Hancock Tower, and uh, I'd never been in an office. I'd never been in a business environment, and I just remember sitting in the lobby waiting for my interview with Jack Connors. I had to wait about 20 minutes. I think I was early, and of course, he's a busy man. Yeah. And I was able to just sort of observe a lot of chance meetings, sort of, you know, hallway conversations. And I just really connected with the energy and the vibe. There were a lot of women, quite a lot of young people. I mean, the agency was only 14 years old. Um, and it just it just was really, I, I even before I got in for my interview, I was intrigued. Mm. And then um, having started my job, uh, as a receptionist, I would say just a couple months in, I was already looking forward to the next, thinking, you know, what would be my next job here. And uh, so I, I would say it was pretty immediate. Yeah, that's cool. You, you said something that resonated with me uh, about being a waitress and how that sort of influenced or, or, or helped you along the way. And, and, and I kind of, I believe that because I think that if you can waitress or you can bartend or you can host and you can cook you know, in, in, in that kind of a setting, it does prepare you for a lot of things. Tell us from your vantage point. Well, you know this, Roger, better than anybody. But when I started um, waitressing, I realized – early on that it's it's a very entrepreneurial job. So you're basically a small business person. You get a very low um, minimum wage. I was going to say salary, but you know, your, your fixed income mm -hmm. is uh, a little bit lower. And then all the upside is based on your performance. And you are 100% in control of how much money you earn. And it's about how you treat people and how whether you can make connections with people and the experience that you can give a customer. And I started, that was my first job when I was 15 years old. I think I lied and said I was 16 <laughs> at the time. I think I looked about 12. I was kind of a late bloomer, so I can't believe they believed me. Did but you ever serve at, at legal? I never, never. No? no, I never did. I don't think I was good enough to get a job at legal. No, 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 no. She, she, she would have been more than good enough. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> That's funny. You know, like when you started, you know, in the early 80s, I was thinking like, looking at the Mad Men era of the TV mm, show. Mm. And, and you were really starting in that era. You know, the Mad Men was like 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever. How, do you, how was it in that area working as a female? And also, how do you think it's changed in the last 30 years, you know, moving forward? So what, when Ma I think Mad Men started in the early 60s. 
Yeah, somewhere um, in there. And I started in the early 80s. But I have to say, it was the first 10 years were not that dissimilar yeah. to what you saw on Mad Men in terms of um, the work was more sort of based on creative just sort of, you know, a little more instinctive. Mm-hmm. Uh, the creative work, it's, it's, a ve- it's a very studied industry now. We do a ton of research, and the um, insights that come from data that spark creative ideas are critical. And they're really, you know, if you're sort of, I always say, if you're misaligned by 1% at the beginning of a process, if you're 1% off, then it just, that percent just increases as you get to the end of the process. And so the end, the work is going to be, is going to be way off if your insights are off. So, so, so as you, as you, you saw Mad Men. Mm-hmm. So in, in terms of when you looked at Mad Men, do you think uh, that was the golden age of advertising? Or did you say, you know, that was really uh, misogynistic and I'm kind of repulsed by what I saw? What, what went through yeah. your mind as you're watching that? Oh, so the latter, for sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, um, and it was, a, it was a star system. So the system around talent, there was, if you were extraordinary at your craft, you could get away with any kind of behavior. Hmm. Uh, any kind of, all, any and all behavior was overlooked. If that person um, was, was sort of a, you know, if the talent level mm-hmm. was, was outsized and if they could put the points on the board. And so it was, you know, I, I actually think this is the, is the golden era for me because the, um, I was jokingly, half jokingly say that just when I was getting bored with the industry, the, the internet came along. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so all the data that we have on people, not mm-hmm. we used to measure attitudes, sort of what people think mm-hmm. and what they feel, and that would be what we would base our I- insights on uh, and our creative ideas and platforms. Now it's what people think and feel, but it's also what they do. And so we're able to actually um, observe behaviors mm-hmm. and so that what, uh, the work that we produce and the ideas and the platforms that we put out in, in the world are m- more based, are not just based on thinking and feeling, but actually what people do. Mm-hmm. And so the work is just much smarter. The process is more robust. It's just a much more interesting process. So, so with, with the internet era and digital era coming in now, when you sit with customers uh, or, you know, uh, clients, um, it used to be, well, you know, this should be your, your radio budget, your TV budget, your, your newspaper budget. And now within the last five years, the advent of social media and everything, how has that needle moved from a percentage-wise of what sort of is evolving so it's a it's about fifty percent. Really? Um, yeah, just yeah. it's sort of um, both in terms of the time people spend with yeah. digital, social, mobile um, versus you know traditional media. Um, it sort of hit that tipping point. Also, the spend, which is sort of unbelievable when you think of the price of uh, television. So so sort of like the you know the cost per on like a television buy, say like a Super Bowl. Uh, or an NFL, an expensive, um, you know, the cost of a spot versus what you can, what you can buy in digital media. Digital is much more targeted, and so you're not paying for that waste, mm. and so it's a much more efficient buy. Now you don't get the mass reach. And by the way, what's interesting is that um, social has elevated television watching. So it's mm. not just taken attention away, but it's also for live programming. Mm-hmm. And you can see the types of, of programs. So there are fewer sort of dramas, sitcoms, sort of the scripted stuff. There's less of that because A, it's very expensive to produce. And B, you don't need to watch it in real time. So people time mm-hmm. shift it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so uh, most of the Emmy award winning or Emmy nominated programming, if you look at sort of the top dramas, they're on uh, platforms that don't even accept advertising. Hmm. So Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, HBO, you, there aren't even opportunities to advertise. And so what um, what the traditional networks and cable networks and over-the-air networks are investing in is more programming that will be watched live, whether it is um, 
you know, sports, obviously, mm-hmm. news, sports, obviously, yeah. but also all, all kinds of unscripted series um, you know, you that know, people Rod- tend to watch live. Yeah. We know, Roger, the number that Karen mentioned, the percent, I read a little while ago with the average the revenue last year was like $48 billion in total of advertising agencies, digital agencies, PR, whatever. And like you mentioned, 50% is the digital. Going back again in the 80s, because I remember when I am an agency for a couple, like 20 years, creative was king. Every agency, and, in, and even Hill Holiday, when you did a great campaign for all your clients, you won best of show, whatever, agencies were selected on the creative brilliance of those agencies. Today, it's a whole different ballpark. So what, what criteria are, are clients using to select an agency you know, versus years ago when it was creative, it was king? What is it now? What's king now? So it's interesting. There's two schools of thought. One is that creative is still king because yep. if you think about all the competing demands on people's attention, hmm. there's so many more than there were back in the 80s. Uh, so many more channels and platforms. People are constantly, they have their heads down. It's very hard to capture people's attention. They have two, three screens going at a time. Is, is that because, you know, I mean, again, I mean, you're, you're looking at uh, millennials in particular and, and, and maybe up to aging boomers. I mean, that's so it, it really gets fairly complicated. You have to really know who you're playing to uh, as opposed one size fits all. That's right. So it depends exactly right. It depends not only on the audience, but it depends on the type of product or service that you're selling. And what we do now is we really study the customer journey, whether it's B2C, B2B, a product, a service, something that's commoditized, something that's highly specialized and differentiated. So we study the customer journey and we don't really look at the traditional funnel anymore where you know the at the top of the funnel the broadest part of the funnel you're trying to build awareness and then familiarity and then favorability and then you're trying to convert leads at the bottom of the funnel because of digital people come in and out of the funnel in the buying process at all different periods and and times and so we look at instead of a funnel we look at a, a customer journey which is a much more complex yeah. uh, thing to study so it really depends on uh, who, what, what the you know the bu- buying cycle. Some buying cycles are very very long. Some buying cycles are quick. But but what I was going to say was the other school of thought is that data is king. Mm-hmm. So there's one school of thought that creative is king and another that data is king. Sometimes it depends on the product or service. Sometimes it depends on the buyer, the person, the client, and what their philosophy is. So you really have to be um, extraordinarily good at both. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then there's sort of a school. I always say that when we pitch business, there's um, there's two kinds of clients in terms of decision criteria. One is looking to buy an idea right then and there mm-hmm. in the pitch process, mm-hmm. which is typically about a three to four month process. And the other is looking to find a team of people that they can um, work with productively mm. to get to an idea together. And um, so it's it's a very it's very interesting when you're pitching business. You can tell right away which. Uh, personally, right. I think the latter it gets you, you get to vibe, a right? better. Yeah. Uh, you get to a better a better so, choice, so a better agency job really for you. Has been to educate your clients because clients are not overly educated. I mean, they they will come in saying, "I want to move the needle." Mm. without understanding what that entails. And then, you know, so, so you know, there's sort of the, what draws them in. And it, the other thing is, you know, the, uh, the brand building. And, you know, more of a long term, which I'm assuming agencies really want to try to get involved with because that's the long term investment that pays off. Well, so we, you've got to do both. You mm. got to, you know, you can't build a brand and then like three years later, we'll start selling things. So you got to do both at the same time. And we have a shared way of working at the agency that we uh, talk to our clients and our prospective clients about early on. And the first step in the process is my favorite step because we call it interrogating the problem. Because as I referred to earlier, if you're misaligned on what problem you're trying to solve, Mm. you're not going to get to the right solution. And you're going to find that out half a year later. So we spend a lot of time literally interrogating the problem. So if a client comes to us and says, here's my business objective, rather than take that at face value, we'll spend a couple of weeks 
really interrogating that and making sure that that is, in fact, the problem we're trying to solve. And mm. so we figure out what's the real business problem. How do we translate that into a marketing problem uh, to solve? And then a communications, ultimately a communications problem to solve. Because if you're not aligned mm -hmm. at the beginning, mm -hmm. you're going to waste a lot of time and resource, and you're not going to get to the right solution. Okay. Maybe 15 years ago, there's been a big shift. I mean, years ago, there was something called the agency of record. And every agency went after a client, and someone was called the agency of record, which the agency handled everything from advertising to PR to collateral, you name it. Today, with the, um, the variety of services, digital, media, social media, you know, web, PR, whatever, it's very common today for a client to have maybe, even though you, you don't probably enjoy this, seven or eight agencies having a piece of the pie. So my question is, how has that shift changed your strategy on how you pitch clients and then which services do you feel you, you want to pitch them with because this agency of record is kind of gone by the wayside, so yes, to speak? Yeah, it's yeah. a really important point, Larry. So, so as you said, agency of record relationships, most clients other than really, really large companies that you know really wanted to um, – it was a risk issue where mm -hmm. they didn't want to have just rely on one agency, um, had these exclusive agency of record relationships. And it was sort of a good client would say, you know, we would, they say, you know, I'll buy, you fly. And so right. we would build different newer disciplines on the backs of clients who uh, willingly would say, I trust you, you're smart people, you do a great job on this, so I'm going to pay you to build that. And uh, and we'll learn it as we go, um, and though and as you mentioned, those days are over. So what you sort of shifted to? Um, well, first we shifted to lead agency relationships, where we as Hill Holiday, where we we came from the land of you know exclusive AOR, yes. um, and we had <laughs> multiple multiple oh, yeah. uh, disciplines that we that we built and added over the years. So we would typically play the lead agency role amongst a whole ecosystem of agency specialists, or sometimes we were considered a specialist agency and we would work with a lead agency. And now we're shifting to sort of even a, a different place lately, which is around just really project-based. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so we own a um, another agency called EP & Co., which is headquartered in Greenville, South Carolina, that we bought in 2004. They just pitched and won Lowe's um, Home Improvement. They um, went out and said, we're going to select three different agencies. So EP and Co. was one of three knowingly. Uh, we're not going to have one agency, and we're not going to have a lead agency model. We're just going to have three agencies. Each is going to get a uh, retainer for, you know, whatever X scope of work they worked out with each. But then the whole there's going to be jump balls around all you know a lot of different types of mm. so mean, yeah it's yeah, interesting that gets complicated yeah. i mean obviously yeah. because I you want a consistency in message and 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 everyone has sort of their own sort of read on it so i i can imagine that's not a lot of fun so the you know the lead agency model you do get that consistency right, because right. by naming a lead agency mm -hmm. that agency typically is in charge of strategy and a big creative idea mm -hmm. and platform that um, although you work with all the other agencies right, to right. get to that idea, hmm. you know, sort of there are standards and everybody knows what the brand stands for and what platform we're building things off of. So I think a client that is as established as Lowe's where everybody really knows what they stand yeah. for, maybe they can it, – it's, it's a very interesting – it's a very interesting model and a new model. And I think – I'm not saying low in the case of Lowe's. I don't sure. know exactly what was behind that. But I think sometimes the project-based is driven by um, – uh, you know, it's financial. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so if you've got three agencies competing against one another for an assignment, it's reasonable to assume you'd probably have to pay them less. I don't know. So, so further complicating that, and I, I've been reading about this consultancy uh, business where you got the Price Waterhouse or, or Deloitte or Accenture, everyone sort of advising. That has to further yeah. complicate things. Well, so this that's the exactly Roger what everybody's in my business is sort of talking about right now this whole new class of competition. 
Um, and I'm, I take it seriously. There's a guy who um, runs Accenture Digital, used to work for us, and so I've had many conversations with him. What they do is related. It It's different. They've bought both Deloitte and Accenture, in particular, have bought a couple of creative agencies. Um, I, I don't mm. know how that integration is going. Um, I'm a little bit skeptical. I think what, you know, when I talked before about Larry asked, you know, creative was king. I talk about creative is king, data is king. I think they're much more in the data Mm. camp. I believe you're right. And so what they do is related to what we do. I don't know that it's, um, I think more of it is technology based. I don't know that it's exactly competitive. Mm. Again, I take all uh, competition seriously. I don't, um, you know, it just, I just think it's, in fact, I think it could be complementary where, if there's a piece, uh, if there's an idea based on a piece of technology that they develop for mm. a retailer that helps people um, ordering uh, garments online figure out what size, you know, is going to be a better fit for them mm-hmm. so that, um, you know, there are fewer returns and it's yeah. a less costly process for the retailer, then you're going to need somebody to communicate that. And so I feel like we could work hand in hand. What I think is a bigger threat to our business personally um, is the rise of in-house agencies. So from, you know, back in the 80s, Larry, when you had your agency, every retail client had an in-house agency. Um, TJX, Staples, um, Fidelity, on and on and on. But they complemented what the creative agency did. So again, We'd come up with the strategy and the overarching platform, and then um, there was certain type of work that you just didn't need to pay an outside agency to do. All the in-store, yeah. it just was it was smart to have an internal agency. Now, I think um, clients in-house agencies they're getting they're recruiting better talent, and they're doing higher value work and real strategic work. So, and again, I think there's a I, I understand what. Uh, clients, you know, we're all put upon. It's harder, you know, margins are harder to come by. We're all suffering from margin compression, every single business category and industry. And so I understand where it's coming from. People are just looking for efficiencies. Mm -hmm. It makes perfect sense. So to me personally, I think that is potentially, you know, time will tell on both the consultancies and the in-house agencies. But personally, I think think, in-house agencies are a bigger threat. I think the biggest threat today, as you said that, Karen, Raj, I read that 80% 80% of agencies today are perceiving and seeing their clients take some part of the marketing function and bring it house. But years ago, that marketing function, they were not intimidated and they weren't competing with Hill Holiday. They were kind of managing the marketing. Today, they are pirating away top creative talent, top digital talent, whatever, to almost create a mini Hill Holiday within their company. So that even makes it even more complicated, more challenging for you because you're up against other talent versus people managing the function. Exactly. And the way I look at it, because as you invest in different um, new disciplines and capabilities, you also have to divest of other things. I mean, you just can't do everything. And to your point earlier, Larry, clients, they want to know, like, of these 14 things, tell me the seven that you are really expert Mm -hmm. at. And then we will then help find partners. So we have preferred partners across the board. Um, sometimes we do enough of something for a client, and sometimes we really don't, and we're not the best resource. So we're very transparent, um, and we have uh, we have other agencies that we partner really productively with our sort of preferred partners that we because collaboration it takes it's a skill set you yeah. need to learn. Yeah. And you know, in the '80s and even the '90s, agency people were not known to be very collaborative. Now you really have to be collaborative. But what I what I think about is what is commoditized today or what could potentially become commoditized. Mm. And those are the types of things mm-hmm. that I'm looking to divest of and the, and things yeah. that are more, you know, human beings with, you know, what can, what is AI going to replace, which yes. is great because yes. that's how you yes. get efficiencies. Yes. And then what are human beings always going to be required to do? And, and, and ideas are, you know, uh, you need people. So for me, I'm doubling down in the in the ideas department and the kind of people who 
come up with these extraordinary ideas that drive business for clients and sort of looking to divest of things that can be um, replaced uh, with technology. I, I, I would absolutely agree with that. I don't see uh, in-house um, departments being anything close to. I mean, that's really watering it down. And, and, and given the evolution of many of these new business models today, uh, I think outsourcing is going to be key. You want to outsource expertise. I mean, that's where it's going to go. Let me just uh, jump to something, talking about evolution of business models. One of the things that you have done, uh, and, and, and to your credit, you have changed a lot of the corporate leadership uh, in companies that used to were traditionally all male and and one or two women involved, and you have changed that to a significant number of women uh, in a leadership position. So I want you to fill in the blank. Women make better corporate leaders because they're prettier. <laughs> uh, okay, we're going to edit that out. Yes, we are going to edit that we out. We also Good. smell better, but we'll edit that out. <laughs> or not, or don't edit it out. Um, well, I so I, you know you read that, um, and first of all, you can't. You just have to be careful not to overgeneralize. So I'm going to mm-hmm. generalize a little bit. Go ahead. But women typically are more collaborative. They are more comfortable working iteratively. Um, they typically have less ego. They um, and I, I always say women are better at thinking outside the box, which is very very important in my business because we've never been let inside the box. We don't even know where the box is. <laughs> so I and again and I, I'm not I don't know about every industry, Roger, mm-hmm. but I think I know that in my industry you have to think outside the box. So the pace of change just increases. You know, when I think back to the '80s and the '90s and even the aughts, when I thought we were mm-hmm. working quickly, you mm-hmm. know, the pace of change was fast. I mean, it's just ridiculous, and it's. It's just unrelenting now. And so you really need to be able to see around corners to anticipate change, to embrace change. And so I think – it's not that men aren't good at that, but I think that any um, entrenched group where, you know, men in business, very much an entrenched group, has sort of a um, vested interest, whether it's conscious or unconscious mm-hmm. – in, ter- in, in maintaining the status quo. And so I think, you know, when you're part of an underrepresented group, whether it's women, people of color, uh, people who have various disabilities, um, LGBTQ, when, when you're underrepresented, you, you have no interest in maintaining the status quo. And so I do think that, again, when I go back to ideas and I sort of assess people based on what ideas do you have, what ideas have you brought forward, um, typically, not just women, but people in, uh, in underrepresented groups are typically better at that. Larry, Karen is spot on. And it was kind of a leading question because my chief operating officer is a woman and she's populated much of our leadership team with women. Yes, more collaborative, um, not an, an ego, a huge emotional IQ, mm-hmm. and far more effective than when I had male teams in there, far more effective. So I, I, I think it's a hidden op- – it, it's a lost opportunity if you're not thinking this way. Yeah. Well, and I – if I can just give an example of where um, pe- having people of difference – Anyone who's ever felt they were the other, and of course I'm using air quotes, which no one can see um, right now, but um, we uh, had a very important learning and teaching moment about a year ago. We had a new client, um, and we created ads that we hired two um, brilliant comedians, women, to, uh, and we scripted the ads, but then we let them riff and ad lib as well. And we just shot a whole bunch of stuff and and then edited a series of commercials together. And it was, there was one commercial, it was Party City was the client and it was right for the Super Bowl. 
And Ooh, I remember they that were one. Sad. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so they were selling. Um, I forget the name of the product. Oh my goodness. Anyway, they were selling this. Um, Inflatium was what it was called. So it was like <laughs> right. a stadium ba- made of balloons yeah. that would go yeah. around your <laughs> yes. table yeah. for your Super yeah. Bowl party. And there was this go- like glorious spread of food. And then over to the side on a bar stool was a little bowl with a couple of boring looking crackers mm. and these two comedians one of them made a joke about like who's that for and it was a joke that offended the entire gluten-free uh, community which um it's a disability i mean it wasn't anything i don't suffer from it it wasn't anything that i gave a lot of thought right. to and it was a real learning experience. And fast forward, and if, and by the way, we did the right we, thing. We've all sort of pushed the envelope on some of this. Well, it's, <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. But anyway, fast forward to a couple months later, um, we have a wonderful uh, receptionist. I have a fondness for receptionists. We have a former receptionist <laughs> sort of club at Hill Holiday. Uh, young woman who had just started. Um, she just graduated from college. And she was in my office, and she said something very, very profound. She said, as a black plus-size plus Latina woman, yeah. I could – I am not – I do not – she's not – it doesn't have celiac disease. But she said, I could have told you if I was in that room, mm. I could have told mm. you mm. that was a mistake. So, so well. where is the dividing line between sensitivity and political correctness? Well, I think, I mean, look, there's nothing in it for anybody to offend any, anyone. And so I, I think you have to be really aware and careful. But my point, Roger, is that these were sensitivities that we none of us were mm-hmm. aware of. And mm-hmm. had we right. had somebody in the room, You're right. not Good necessarily point. someone who suffered from that particular uh, disease mm. or state, mm. um, they would have said, hey, wait a minute, your point about women having higher EQ is because we had to pay much more attention to what was going on around us to even get into the room to get the seat at the table. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So women, if we were clueless, <laughs> you know, if we didn't pick up the cues in the room, we didn't get mm-hmm. in the room. So I think having people of difference in the room when decisions are made leads to much better decisions. That's my point of telling this painful story. I want to get to the topic of taglines. You know, if I see one more tagline with the word passion in it, you know, it's a real yawn. Everything's passion. But to me, a tagline reflects the culture. You know, Roger, the culture of the organization, mm-hmm. your DNA, your philosophy. You know, so you look at taglines, Avis, for over 50 years, we try harder. You look at McDonald's, I'm loving it. Uh, with legal seafoods, if it's in fresh, it's in legal. Roger, how long have you had that quote-unquote tagline? You're tired of them? No, I'm not tired. I love it. Fantastic. <laughs> You're not tired of it. Do the not consumer, change The consumer's that. not tired of it. <laughs> what, about 50 years so? 30-ish. Yeah, a long time, okay. And now Hill Holiday has been involved, really probably marked the most significant repositioning of any brand in the last 55 years with Dunkin' Donuts. America runs on Dunkin'. How did you create that tagline? And more importantly, has that tagline or that philosophy been leveraged internationally into a different uh, verbiage? So the um, the genesis. So it's a really in, and so I'll answer that second. But it's a really interesting question, Larry, because um, and I think it it illustrates um, what is really special and unique about Hill Holiday as an agency. Um, so this was 2015. Uh, I'm sorry, 2005. Right. And um, we had a planner. It was he actually ran our brand planning group, who wrote "America Runs on Duncan" as the creative strategy that was meant to spark a creative idea. So that was the overall messaging platform strategy. That was the positioning statement. Right. So that was never meant to be cl- uh, customer-facing. Right. And the brief went to our creatives, uh, who were fantastic, and they spent two or three weeks, and they came back and said, that's the line. We can't – we've been trying to best it for mm-hmm. weeks, and we can't. Mm-hmm. So – I have to say that there is a lot of ego in my business, not necessarily at Hill Holiday, but I don't know any other agency where creative people would have come back and said, we want to use the positioning statement that was written by a brand planner, not a creative person, Mm. as the actual line. Mm. 
Now, fast forward, whatever it is, 13 years later. Yeah. And you mentioned Nigel Travis, right. uh, CEO of Duncan, who did this podcast recently. Right. Um, I think you said he was your first guest. When Nigel came to Duncan, he came to Hill Holiday for, you know, an onboarding. And, of course, you know, you get nervous when there's a new CEO or CMO, mm-hmm. chief marketing officer. And so we all, like, prepared and we were, you know, sitting around the conference room. And I'll never forget, he walked in, sat down and said, look, I know you're, wor- I know you're worried about this. You all look scared. So I'm just going <laughs> to see him saying that. <laughs> I'm just going to say, I'm, I'm just going to tell you that um, we're not changing that line. I think you've been using it as an advertising tagline. We need to think about it as a brand philosophy. And so the way it was presented, and I'll never forget – we um, papered a conference room. We presented, we started in-store, and the first piece of communication that we presented were the T-shirts that the crew would wear mm. and the back of the T-shirts so that when the uh, crew person turned around to get your order, you'd see on the back of the T-shirt there were two Dunkin' Cups, one upside down, almost like looking like a battery pack. America Runs on Dunkin'. That was the first thing that we presented. We presented... Um, we the uh, that they we suggested that which they then did paint um, um, at the end of the drive-through a last line that said start in big bubble type in their in their type you know the the typography that they use um, and then we went in store and by the time we sort of made our way out and to television which is how most agencies at least at that point would have started their presentations we had presented like 100 different pieces of communication so that they could see how this would live from the inside out. Um, and um, and it, re- it really, really connected. And so and, – and part of the original concept was that the first word, America, could be mm. any, anything, any, any country, country right. um, any sports franchise, uh, any, you know, f- anything, fill in the blank. Easily transferable leverage across the board. Exactly. No, it's cool. It's really cool. Uh, are there any business categories that um, you feel that uh, if you brought back to your group, they go, oh, gee, I wish she didn't bring that one back? <laughs> so, such sure. a gr- it's such it's a, a category. Great- I'm not asking okay. for names. It is <laughs> such a great question, Roger, because – and listen, would – you know – Automotive, beer, there, there are certain categories that are super sexy. And if you bring that in, everybody's just lined up at the door. But I have to say that what we've proven as an agency, and we just celebrated our 50th anniversary last month. Yeah. Um, what we've proven as an agency is that you can do incredibly impactful and amazing work in any category. And I'll use, we'll go back to 1985, and I'll use John Hancock as the example when um, life insurance, which is principally what they were in 1985, Mm -hmm. they're a much more diverse company Mm -hmm. now, um, was not something that creative people would deem sexy, that you would sort of bring that in the door. And we won that business in 1985 with a campaign called Real Life Real Answers, which some people may or may not remember. Mm -hmm. We did research decades after those commercials uh, ran, and people had this false sense of awareness that they had just seen them like on a football game last night, which is really interesting. But then the following year, we won um, the Grand Prix at Cannes, which is actually, I was mentioning, is next week, our mm-hmm. big crea- a festival of creativity in uh, Cannes, France, is next week. Um, the biggest stage I'm in advertising. Going, but no, but you're, welcome. you're welcome. You're welcome to come. If Roger was going, I was going with him. <laughs> you're welcome to come. Um, and um, and, the, and the Palme d'Or. So the director won the mm. Palme d'Or. For wow. the prize. A guy named Joe Pitka, who's a super famous director now. Um, so it won the Grand Prix and it won the Palme d'Or. So best uh, commercial, best piece of advertising for that year globally. This wow. is a global festival, and and best piece of directing globally. And real life freelancers really not only changed Hancock's business, um, but it really changed advertising. And if you think back to, we ended up eventually um, changing it because so many, not just in the insurance or financial service categories, but so many advertisers in so many different categories had um, copied um, that that sort mm. of, you know, cinema verite, that 
mm-hmm. that turning the camera around and rather than talking about the company and sort of chest beating, you had Prudential Rock, you had the Traveler's Umbrella, you had MetLife Snoopy. Um, we actually talked about the issues around life insurance, which aren't pleasant issues to talk mm-hmm. about. Death and debt weren't something that people talked about on television in 1985. Right. And right. so we turned the camera around to show real-life customers struggling with these issues, and it really, really connected. So I tell that story because I think it's the best example of uh, I believe you can do stellar work and make a real business impact uh, in any category. So maybe the drier, the, uh, you know, sort of the brand per se, the more opportunity to turn it around. Well, I think there are certain mm-hmm. categories where there's nothing but white space. Right. We just want a big um, – Funeral health- homes. Well, <laughs> well, there you go. We, we, um, that would be a new that would be new for me. But we'd give it a whirl. I mean, saying in any agency, the desire is to have a category either unknown or it's never even been positioned and make it something really phenomenal. Can I have a question? Ask you. I was thinking earlier about your leadership style. About twenty years ago, Interpublic acquired Hill Holiday. I'm curious to know your leadership style. How has that changed? And how has it changed from 20 years ago being an independent agency, not being a part of a big holding company? How have those dynamics changed in terms of running the business and you as a leader having to comply or you know, just go with the gig because it's a whole different world? Yeah, so it really isn't, and I will say no disrespect intended to uh, Interpublic Group, which owns us, right. we it, we still behave as if we were independent. Well, it's so, nice that the culture internally, morale didn't change, because usually when you're acquired, a lot of funny things happen, and people aren't very enchanted with that new owner, you know? So I'll, ta- I'll take a liberty and tell you a little story. When Jack Connors retired at the end of 2006, um, he had dinner with the uh, CEO of our, of our holding company, Michael Roth, who's a fantastic guy. And at the end of the dinner, Michael looked across the table at Jack and said, Jack, we bought you almost two decades ago. When are we going to own you? And Jack looked across the table with a straight face and said, I'll let you know. <laughs> and that kind of works for both parties. So, um, Good story. That's a yeah. very nice story. We're going to now go to what we call the lightning round. So we're going to fire some questions. <laughs> I'm at scared. You. And no, 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 no. You just you know, you, and it, it, you know, it's sort of like what, what was it? You can say pass at a certain point, and we'll we'll, we'll yeah, figure we'll that out. We'll come back to you. Okay. All right. So okay. So in in television advertising, there are sexy people, there are babies, and there are animals that are used to sell products. Has that changed, or is that go- or is there a next evolution to that? Yeah, it's funny. I I think we think more about um, how to differentiate. So, kind of what we I have a, a great a uh, great client who's um, who uh, has a phrase. He calls them NBDBs, never been done before. So our clients are typically looking for things that have never been done before. So I I think there are devices that people. Um, you know, rely on sometimes. But I think what most people in my business are looking to do are the NBDBs, the never-been-done-befores. Can I mention when we first had the introduction that besides being CEO, you've had 16 jobs at Hill Holiday. If you had to go back in time, what was the most favorite exciting you had? Oh, that's a great question. Wow. Um, well, so I, I really like the job I have now. Um, but I would have guessed that. Yeah, <laughs> CEO is pretty good. Um, it, well, but I'll tell you the reason is probably not what you would think. It's because I learn every single day. So, mm-hmm. you know, as you kind of make your way up the food chain, you get exposed and you're surrounded with people who challenge you more and more. And I really enjoy that. I've been in this business for a long time. And the day I don't learn something is the day that I'll I'll, I'll get out of the business. And so yeah. I, I love, I relish that. I'll say CEO and um, probably receptionist would be the other one. Awesome. I loved I loved that That's job. Great. I loved that job. A lot of the same, in a, in a funny way, there were a lot of the same um, sort of, characteristics that I liked about both. Which insurance ads do you like best? Farmers, 
Geico or Progressive? And, and for the record, I'm going to tell you that flow annoys me. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so funny. My, my son is uh, it works for a, a, a competitive uh, ad agency in Portland, Oregon, Widening Kennedy, and he's actually home. Um, and we were just talking about this last night because we were watching TV. And so I think – and the Geico work is done by a sister agency, a sister IPG agency. So I think when you look at the body of work for both Geico and Progressive, I think it's a phenomenal body of work. They both spend, I think, a billion or close to a billion dollars. And really? so that's why you see wow. – you see that, you you know, they're, they're just – a lot of that spent on television – I actually think farmers, which is probably not what you expected me to say, I actually think farmers just gets better and I better agree. and better. I, I like, and I'm a J.K. Simmons fan. Yeah. I have to well, say. he's the best. And so I also like the mnemonic, like you talked, we talked about devices, you were saying babies and animals. Yeah. The mnemonic, the uh, mnemonic device at the end, yeah. the little musical right. mnemonic, I think that is a really savvy thing because, again, we talk about, you know, second screen behavior mm. people have their iphone their ipad their laptop or whatever going while they're watching television so typically there's you got to assume people aren't looking at the screen and so like some kind of auditory cues um that 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 little musical thing is really really i think important i don't know because i don't work on the campaign but i bet that's very very important and to memorable the success of that yeah. really memorable mm-hmm. and so i think um look brands are shortcuts and whether it's an auditory, you know, whether it's a tagline or, you know, some kind of musical mnemonic, you got to give people shortcuts because they don't pay 100% attention to your work. I know that, you know, advertising in general by any college kid, everybody wants to get an advertising, Madison Ave, whatever. It's glamorous. You go on photo shoots, you travel the world, the whole thing, right? What would you say is the number one misperception about the ad biz? Everything you just said, that it's glamorous. <laughs> it's hard work. So I don't want to discourage anybody because um, I think it's a great industry for particularly young people, mm. um, people of difference, people in underrepresented groups, everything that I talked about. Um, I also think it's interesting today. It's a much better business for younger people than when I started because you had to kind of learn, you had to earn your stripes. And now, you know, we're digital immigrants and digital natives come in and they're really mm. facile with all kinds of social media and different technologies that they don't have to learn and unlearn things like we did. They just it's are, their norm. It's their norm. And yeah. so for me, like, you know, again, digital has leveled the playing field. And so age is not an issue anymore. You don't have to be in the business, you know, five years, 10 years, 15 years to make different sorts of contributions. We have kids coming in making contributions on day one. Um, And we have reverse mentorships. You know, we I learned from them. So I think it's a great business for young people. However, it is not a glamorous business. It's not any more glamorous than any other. And creative ideas are hard work. And you are putting putting an idea out there requires, you know, I always say I have to, my job is to create an environment of emotional safety for people because putting an idea out there is like you're very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And by the way, you know, nine out of ten, Jack Connors used to say, <laughs> Jack Connors, when, when we somebody didn't buy an idea or we lost a piece of business, he'd say, hey, even the best hitter in baseball struck out six out of ten times. And so you are rejected just mm-hmm. by definition. You're rejected many more times than you're accepted. And so so it's a tough business. It's a tough, tough business. Um, you know, the, the travel, you do travel – you do travel a lot. I will say shoots are con, poor. Con doesn't suck, though. No, it does not. <laughs> it does not. We feel so um, bad for you. Yeah, although it's a very rigorous three days. Oh, yeah. The one, joke, yacht one night, one yacht the next night. <laughs> it's a lot of traveling yeah, with, but that, you don't, with that limo. Yeah, you don't sleep, and nobody. And there's no food. We always joke about there's no food. There's literally no food. You just don't eat for a week. A lot of rosé. <laughs> What ads that you see on TV make you cringe? Oh, my gosh. Well, I think so. Not to be a snob. No, no, um, no. But no, I, think, okay. I think there are more bad ads yeah. than good ads, mm-hmm. and so, uh, which is why I think you can 
really distinguish yourself and differentiate yourself. Um, so A, I can't think of any right now. And Roger, B, I can think of one. And B, I'm not going to say it. That would be so rude. Roger, I'd love to say it. No, no, no. No, I really can't no, think of any. Yep. But I will say there's, I, I think like in any business, your business, I mean, there are more bad restaurants than good. And so that's sort of an opportunity for you to distinguish yourself. And back to the categories, like the sexy categories versus the categories that may be sort of seemingly more boring. Those are the categories where you can really do something great um, and, and, and really get, get, you know, get attention for that. Karen, what brand have you not had as a client that you'd love to have as a client? Mm. Well, oh my gosh. Well, I will say that we just, um, We'd lo- I'd love a car. We'd love a car. We'd love an automotive brand. We've got individually our chief creative officer, our chief strategy officer, our president. We have a lot of people with great car credentials. But many years ago, Infinity was a major account for you. Yes. And since Infinity, we've had uh, – we had Cadillac for a brief time. But we just um, pitched and did not win BMW. And um, we came in a close second. So there were mm. five agencies – pitching and the three agencies that we beat um which are three sort of you know seemingly much sexier agencies than hill holiday uh anomaly droga five and why can't i think of the other one widen, and widen kennedy where my son works yeah. Oh, yeah. um so I, I would love another crack at bmw uh, uh, well just as an aside um how do porcupines differ from bmw's I'm stumped. Is this uh, the lightning round? Uh, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> Tell us, B- Roger. BMWs have you no. Know, uh, porcupines have little pricks on the outside. <laughs> okay. Uh, I did not say that. That was not my voice, folks. You heard that from Roger Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but can I just say I yeah. think the brand is misunderstood to that point and under leveraged, <laughs> and I think. Does it's- anyone in, sitting in this room drive one? Hello. Um, <laughs> oh, I rest my case. All right. But I, That's a nice friend. <laughs> but I. But they're. Gonna, they're. They got some sexy new models coming out this year. So stay tuned. So Karen, post Hill Holiday, you mentioned earlier. Once the day comes that you're not learning, it's the time you're going to leave. So post Hill Holiday, would your title you think be public speaker, be author, be mentor? If you had to pick one of those three, where do you think your your passion is going to go? So I don't want to pick one. I want to pick all three and then three more after that. Awesome. So for me to... The journey continues. For me to leave Hill Holiday, I need to put quite a portfolio together for myself because I am having more fun. The variety and the diversity of what I get to do is ridiculous. I'm well, one lucky leave, person. I'm going to be your agent. <laughs> <laughs> Deal. <laughs> Deal. We shook. We shook. Hey, th- this was great. Karen Kaplan from Hill Holiday, thank you very much. We really enjoyed the conversation. Remember to subscribe to Name Brands on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. We're at Name Brands Pod on Twitter or on Facebook at Name Brands Podcast. That's it for us. We'll be back to talk to you again next Wednesday.